welcome to What the Foster, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to the voiceless. This season, we're focusing on the often unheard and invisible population of current and former youth in foster care. What the Foster is produced by Umbrella, a New Jersey foster care nonprofit, and I'm Rachel Turan. This week, we're talking about the complicated process of removing children from their homes due to safety concerns and challenging the understanding of how kids end up in foster care in the first place. One child's mother dies when he is five, leaving him without a stable place to land for much of the next decade. Another teenager is sent to live with her father before the state gets involved in her case. Here's the first part of Shakri's story. My name is Shakri O'Quinn. Um, my mother passed away when I was five. So from there, growing up, I never stayed nowhere more than um, a year and a half after living with my aunt after my mother died for six years. 12% of foster youth have one deceased parent, compared to just 2.8% of the general population. Shakri lived with different family members in informal kinship care from ages 11 to 15. He lived in the Jersey City area for much of this period, including briefly with his father, but simply said that this situation, like all others, didn't work out. When we interviewed Shakri, he was involved with a college program, but he explained that things weren't always like this for him. I would say this, I wasn't always uh, dismotivated. Just like T.D. Jake said, uh, he didn't always have his head on straight. I used to sell weed. I was like a small time drug dealer type of thing. You know, it was a community as when I was raised in, uh, how my upbringing was. A 2012 literature review shows that use of opiates, amphetamines, crack cocaine, and hallucinogens are substantially higher among foster youth when compared to national prevalence rates. However, studies do not indicate higher rates of use of alcohol or marijuana among foster youth. We asked Christina Riley, Pathways to Academic and Career Exploration to Success Coach for Umbrella, about her experiences with the students she works with and their drug use. A lot of kids like embracing those identities because they feel like it creates some type of credibility or it gives them some sense of identity as opposed to just being someone who gets tossed around in the system. The bottom line with drugs is it is a way to cope. It's a bad coping skill because it creates seriously detrimental effects on their health, but it's one way that they've learned to cope and to socialize, unfortunately. Shakri also fell behind in school because of his drug use. You know, I let it get to a point where it took over my academics with other things being involved in my life. And um, so I was sent to an outpatient program, inpatient program. I didn't finish. It wasn't ever mandatory by court order because uh, I haven't gotten in trouble that far, that deep. Um, however, it did stop me from going to school, and that's what um, made me be a senior by age, but a sophomore by credit. Many youth in care fall behind on their academics while they deal with problematic and stressful home circumstances. The Division of Child Protection and Permanency, or DCPNP, estimates that each new placement represents roughly four to six months of lost schooling. This problem was at the root of the 2008 Fostering Connections to Success and Increasing Adoptions FCSIA, Act, which deems that a child who enters care must stay in the same school they were in before they entered care, unless to do so would not be in their best interest. While Shakri wasn't placed in an inpatient program, 
dealing drugs caused other problems. I've been arrested five times um, as a juvenile, all as a juvenile. My last arrest was when I was 16. So uh, the period of my time when I was being arrested was from the age of 14 to 16. A Chapman Hill study of foster youth in the Midwest found that by age 17, over one half of their sample had a history of arrest. Further, a study in Pennsylvania found that over 90% of foster youth who'd had more than five placements ended up in the juvenile justice system. You know, it was all really minor stuff, uh, knucklehead stuff, nothing real serious. Like one time because I was like laughing, like while someone else was being, um, we call it being in these urban communities or in a ghetto, the hood, what other people might call it. We use the terminology getting ran down on, but it's really frisking. So that's what cops were doing was frisking us, uh, you know, with no probable cause. And I was laughing because one of the people I was with that day was scared, you know, and I had uh, two baggies on me, what you call, which are just regular, regular um, empty baggies for weed, but cops uh, referred to it as paraphernalia. And that's what I was arrested for. That was the cause of arresting me, but what made it that way is because, you know, I kept laughing about it. Majority of my experiences being arrested was due to things like that. And um, my last time being arrested was for jaywalking in Woodbridge. Yeah, jaywalking in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Pace's coach, Christina Riley, explained the efficacy of punitive repercussions among foster youth. You know, scared straight used to work maybe 15 years ago, but it doesn't work anymore. So um, it's almost become too normal for youth, like being arrested, dealing with the cops, you know, getting locked up for a few days. And New Jersey is really working to restructure the correctional system for youth so that recidivism is decreased. So we're closing down a lot of our juvenile correctional facilities and creating these other facilities that are essentially lockdown facilities, but they're not like prisons in a sense. At this point, some people told Shakri that it was his fault he couldn't find a stable home. It seemed like everywhere I went in my life, it wasn't working out at this time. My sister said to me one time, she said, um, you know, you've been from house to house to house and you don't think you're the problem. However, this isn't true and Shakri wasn't alone. Many youth in foster care experience multiple placements and placement stability continues to be a challenge for most child protection agencies. Less than 40% of states are able to achieve the goal of two or fewer placement settings for children in care. Again, Christina had some insight on why foster youth might experience multiple family placements. You know, think about if you were in the situation where you had a brother or a sister who had kids and um, had a really serious drug addiction or mental illness to the point where they couldn't take care of their kids. Obviously in your heart you'd be like, that's my niece, my nephew, that's my grandson, I'm going to take care of them but you don't realize the trauma that they've endured prior to the, the removal happening has created these behavioral issues, these emotional issues, these cognitive processing issues. And, you know, part of it was me, you know, but the other side that it, was, it really wasn't, you know, uh, I was just easier to blame, I was easier to target, I didn't have a mother. You know, my father, he was there, but he wasn't a uh, strong support in my life, I would say. So therefore, you just see a child and, you know, you see no backup behind it, so it's easily to manipulate. And uh, essentially, that's what it was. Shakri was the only one of his siblings to eventually be placed in stranger foster care. Kinship care, another form of foster care that involves state licensing agencies, occurs when children are taken in by family members or close friends. 
Shakri spent a fair amount of time in informal kinship care, which doesn't involve the state and in turn makes the family ineligible for many support services, while he was with his aunt and other family members. Christina said that, in her experience, these kinship placements can sometimes be harmful to a family. And unfortunately, it can almost do more harm than good to a family relationship because now not only are you not speaking to your parents because they've failed you in a sense, but now you feel like your aunt and uncle, who would have been your next family connection or your grandma and grandpa, that they don't treat you right either because they don't understand you. Um, I think maintaining those family relationships is super important and that we should always work towards visitation. While he has three older siblings, two sisters and a brother, Shakri mainly spoke about his relationship with Kayla, his older sister who never entered foster care and who was 12 when his mother died. I think since my sister was a little bit older when it happened, you know, she was able to handle it better. When I was younger, I used to never think about my mother, um, you know, being dead or things like that. Um, actually, from the time my mother passed away until about like eight years old, seven years old, I used to think my mother was just hiding, you know, even after being at the funeral and stuff. But then I turned eight and turned nine, and I realized that, you know, your mother's really gone. So for a lot of times, I probably just shed, like, the pain of feeling. And then now, I'm 19, I think about my mother every day. My mother's not here now. But every single day, I think about my mother. Shakri explained that his experiences have given him a different perspective than Kayla on some things. You know, experiences start to shape our beliefs in life and, um, you know, how we react to certain things. My sister might say something one type of way, and I might say it another or look at it different. So our perspectives is different, you know what I mean? At age 15, with no other options available, Shakri moved to his first group home in Jersey City. And while he doesn't remember the name of the first group home, he does remember running away. So I went to two group homes and one foster home. Uh, the first group home I ever been to, um, that was actually the first group home I was enlisted in and ran away from. We asked Shakri how long he ran away for and what it was like. Uh, I would say for about like a month or two, um, you know, sleeping in the streets, staying at a friend's house, sleeping in an apartment building at the roof. Um, and I was just being a knucklehead, running away from my problems. Um, you know, I, I, I was 15 at the time. I had this sort of pride as to where like, you know, group homes is nasty, group homes, you know, they don't treat you right. They'll try to hurt you, things like that. And honestly, it's not true. So Shakri would run from his group home, oftentimes sleeping on roofs or on the streets. These periods of homelessness, which often lasted up to a month, reflected a possible future for Shakri, since AFCAR's 2016 report indicated that 26% of foster youth who had left care had experienced homelessness. Needless to say, things didn't work out at the first group home. So after he left, Shakri moved to Woodbridge to live with his sister, Kayla. My sister, my sister's husband, which is my brother-in-law, pretty much set everything out for me in Woodbridge. Um, I didn't really enjoy Woodbridge that much, only because I wasn't um, brought up in that environment. I'm used to the city. If you've ever been to Woodbridge, it's like town-like, you know. We've already mentioned the ways educational and environmental instability can affect foster youth. But Shakri also had a daughter while living in unstable housing. Uh, at the time, I was working at McDonald's. I worked about six days a week. I still was going to school, and uh, my daughter was just born. 
A study by Chapin Hill Center for Children at the University of Chicago found that half of young women and one-third of men in foster care had a child by age 21. And AFCAR's 2016 report indicated that 25% of youth had given birth to or fathered a child. So, while some 16-year-olds were worried about their PSAT scores, making varsity sports teams, or whether or not they nailed that audition for the school musical, Shakri was a high schooler who wasn't sure where he'd spend the night, working six days a week, faced with the challenge of being a father. Christina had some things to say about trying to parent while being in care and trying to work and also go to school. That is a lot, and I find that parenting at a young age is very disruptive to an educational goal. It's hard enough feeling like you have to take care of yourself at 18, 19 years old, but then when there's another mouth to feed, another body to clothe, um, you really say, well, I need to work first, go to school second. And I have a student who just really successfully finished her first semester back in college, and she's thriving. She had to withdraw from school when she first started, and she had made attempts to go back after that and was not thriving because she just had too much going on. And I think that's the nice thing about us being able to stay open even after the division closes, even if it's just for that extra year or so, because they're not on their own making these plans. We might not have all the money that the state has been giving them, but they can navigate a little bit easier. On top of all of this, Shakri knew that living in Jersey City wasn't the best for him. But with the birth of his daughter, he decided he needed to move back to be closer to her. And at the time, Jersey City wasn't a good fit for me because I wasn't um, progressing academically. I wasn't progressing spiritually. You know, I wasn't progressing as in building my character, building myself. But um, I made the decision, you know, I have to come back for my daughter. And that's what I did. Yeah, I would have had never came back to Jersey City had it been for my daughter. So Shakri moved back to Jersey City to be closer to his daughter. He was placed in a foster home, unsure of what the future held. So far, Shakri's life was filled with uncertainty and instability. He had lived with family members, strangers, on rooftops, and had moved from city to suburb and back to the city. Meanwhile, Ananda Tominsky was living in suburban New Hampshire, but troubles at home would soon have her headed to a foreign world, Patterson, New Jersey. Um, I'm Ananda Tominsky. I go to William Patterson University, and I'm majoring in psychology and minoring in film. Ananda grew up with her mom, stepfather, and siblings in a small town in New Hampshire. Because of issues between her mother and stepfather, Ananda and her siblings had to leave her home when Ananda was 15. She wasn't going to get the three youngest ones, and then my brother, my oldest brother, he was old enough to make the decision like where he was going to go, and then I really didn't want to go with my mom. It wasn't ideal. It just wasn't. I wasn't involved in the decision making. It was kind of like my mom just saying, like, this is what's going to happen because of other circumstances. I was disappointed in, like, how they ended up, like, my mom and my stepdad. But I was, like, young, so I was like, oh, I'm just going to, like, do my thing, like, come down here and, like, start over. And I was okay with that, thinking that it was going to be maybe better for me. Ananda's biological parents hadn't maintained a relationship, and they parted ways soon after she was born. They like dated like a few more months after I was born, and then they just called it quits. So, because of this, Ananda didn't have much of a relationship with her biological father, who lived in New Jersey. I really didn't have one. 
I had visitations, but I was so young that I wasn't really like forming a bond. After being removed from her mother's home, Ananda went to New Jersey to live with her dad, who she barely knew. She took a train alone when she moved. I think the last time that I had saw him was like when I was maybe like eight or like nine. It's the last time that I remember. I just kind of came down here and it was just kind of like, you're gonna have to like form a bond. We asked Ananda what it was like living with her father, who was almost a stranger to her. Well, you know, like the honeymoon phase. I was aware of that, even being so young, but I was like, you know, like they're gonna be nice to me. They're gonna make me feel comfortable. They're gonna be like, what do you want? What do you need? Whatever. So we went through that phase and it was fine. Like I was like, okay, I can deal with this. Where we lived, um, his sister, which would be my aunt, lived right up the street with her husband and like her kids, which are adults. Once they started getting involved in how they wanted him to parent me, that's when I was kind of like, this is not gonna work. Um, they're just very, very aggressive in what they do and how they say things and how they raised their kids. And it was completely different from like how I was raised. So it just turned into like, um, it was like living with like a stranger that you just, you guys did not get along. And it was like, but I have to be here. And I have to, every time after school, I have to come back to this place. Along with a drastically different family environment, the cultural environment was a total change for Ananda. She was now living in urban Patterson, New Jersey, a wild adjustment from her suburban New Hampshire home. Manchester, the largest city in New Hampshire, has only three-fourths the population of Patterson, and Ananda was from a very small town in New Hampshire. Eastside High School, where Ananda went, is a large inner-city school whose crime and violence was central to the plot of the film Lean on Me, a biographical piece about the school's principal, Joe Lewis Clark. Educational instability affects every youth differently. For Ananda, it meant she spent most days in detention, which kids at her school referred to as the web. It's the school, and then there's these little trailers outside of the school, and they call it the web, and that's where like all the bad kids go. Like If you're not wearing a uniform, or you come in with pants that aren't in the right pants, you're going in there for the entire day. Like. If you get into a fight, you're in there for the day, I think. Separate. If I'm being honest, on my end, when I did go to school, like in New Hampshire, you don't have to wear a uniform, like you can just wear whatever. So I went to Eastside, and that's a completely different environment for me. And so I went in there, I would wear like my regular clothes, I wouldn't wear the uniform, so then I would get sent to the web like almost every day, and I was always in there. For both teachers and her new family, Ananda's behavior was problematic. So that was like one of the issues, like she doesn't listen, she does what she wants. Unsatisfied with her home life, Ananda would run away. In 2017, AFCARS reported about 1% of foster youth had run away, or about 4,734 children. However, the Midwest evaluation of the adult functioning of former foster youth, summarized by Chapin Hill, cites that one half of youth reported running away from out-of-home care, and almost two-thirds of those who had run away did so multiple times. Her habit of running away eventually got Ananda placed in out-of-home care. There was like this one time that I ran away and then I came back and then my dad called the cops and then 
They took me, you know, like they took you like to the hospital. He told them that like I was unstable, that I wanted to like kill myself, this and that. So he got me locked up in a mental hospital for like a few weeks. I think he wanted control and he wanted a break from having to deal with me. My dad didn't know how to be a dad. He has like, I think he has like five other kids that he was never there for. So he didn't know how to be a parent and I didn't know how to be a kid to someone I didn't know. I didn't know how to be a daughter. We asked Ananda what it meant to be a parent. Just to like love someone unconditionally and like abide by what they want and see to it that their dreams for you, you accomplish. And he didn't have any of that for me and I had nothing to give him. When Ananda was hospitalized, the state became involved in her case, and she was moved into a foster home. I didn't feel like I was the definition of a foster kid. The image that I had in my head, you're going to be like a drug addict, you're going to come from like a really, really bad home, um, you've been to juvie, that's what I thought like a foster kid was. I knew why, like I didn't, like I wasn't staying home, they had to place me somewhere, but like, I don't know, like I just, maybe I didn't think I was gonna end up as like a foster kid, like completely, I guess. So now you've heard about the unrest that Shakri and Ananda experienced in the wake of losing their sense of home. And next week, you'll hear about their experiences in foster and group homes. Here's a preview of what's to come. In terms of cleanliness, it was gross. Um, and it was just like really run down, it was just, it was gross. Like I don't understand how she was able to be a foster parent.